0: What might we come to understand when we take the time to try and understand the things we can't understand? From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. The very idea of understanding a piece of theater, or misunderstanding it, or failing to understand it, has, for much of the past 40 years, been a predominant topic whenever the conversation turns to theater director Peter Sellers. Since the time he staged Anthony and Cleopatra in a dormitory swimming pool at Harvard, Sellers, the recipient of a 1983 MacArthur Genius Grant, has been confounding audiences and critics. His work has always been difficult. One reviewer called 1987's Nixon in China, good for a few giggles, but only intermittently understandable. Writing about his 1994 merchant of Venice, the New York Times said of the audience, those who held out to the end had the glazed look of hit and run victims. But that impenetrability also has its ardent fans. One of them is the scholar of Shakespeare and performance studies, Ayana Thompson, who is now director of the Arizona Center for Medieval and Renaissance Studies at Arizona State University. Thompson is the author of a new book about Peter Sellers, the latest in the Shakespeare in the Theater series from Bloomsbury. In it, she explores his influences from the avant-garde marionette theater he watched growing up in Pittsburgh to the Russian agitprop director Yuri Lyobomov to Japanese kabuki and tracks the predominant theme of his work, Sellers' laser-like focus on race in America. Dr. Thompson came into the studio to talk about all this recently, and joining her, we're happy to say, was the subject of the book himself, Peter Sellers. We call this podcast, I Understand Thee Well. Peter Sellers and Ayanna Thompson are interviewed by Barbara Bogave.
1: Ayana, let's start with you because I know that one of the things that you've always appreciated so much about Peter and why you were so excited to to write this book is his willingness, as you put it, to never shy away from confronting America's racial history. So before we get into individual productions... Could you please put his work for us in a broader context of theater as a whole? Why he stands out for you in this regard? Oh, my God. <laughs> and and we're just going to pretend you're not sc- here, Peter. <laughs> no, it's
2: the best. I want it, The thing is, I want Peter to interject because it wouldn't make sense without, you know, him disagreeing. <laughs> but I think... Uh, What makes Peter's work remarkable is that he doesn't aim for clarity. And so much commercial Shakespeare theater now in the U.S. and the U.K. and Canada aims to create productions that are extremely clear in their rhetoric. And it's very unlike reality. Right? But particularly Where
1: you, regarding race and racial I'm history. I'm getting oh, Okay.
2: <laughs> <laughs> if that's all right. But, but what I appreciate about Peter is that his productions, he wants to look more like our world. And our messy world. Our messy world, where you don't often understand people's intentions, where you can actually be looking them in the eye and not understand what they're saying. And race is central to this for him as part of the way that he is reflecting the world we're experiencing. So even going back to his earliest Shakespeare productions at Harvard, he was making his Harvard students and all the other luminaries who were then coming to flocking to see his productions think about about what is it that we think we know about Shakespeare and how is the world that he's presenting us in all its glorious technicolor and complexity different from what we assumed. Oh my God. I have to just say
3: that the thing that I love is reading Ayanna Thompson's work. I mean, I just like, I'm sorry, it's the best. (laughs) Because... She moves into these zones where people think they're doing one thing, but they're probably also doing something else. And where, in fact, there are a bunch of unannounced things. And Shakespeare, of course, is all about characters like that. And Shakespeare's all about your second, third, and fourth thoughts all moving through this incredible, dense forest of poetry. And so that kind of thrill... is what we're dealing with every day, and so, so, so you know what is the backstory and the backstory and the backstory. So Shakespeare is all about the backstory, and of course, race is exactly one of those things which, again, just from the melatonin point of view, doesn't exist, and meanwhile is constructed in all these imaginaries.
1: I love how you both have already integrated race into the just the everything else and <laughs> that it's that it's not right. segregated into some category. Well, and
3: Shakespeare I mean, particularly like The Nightmare is teaching plays like The Merchant of Venice, where, you know, it's often presented as, you know, Shakespeare's anti Semitic play. And no, no. Shakespeare's actually race is signaled, triggered, and responded to through all these
2: invisible signifiers or barely visible signifiers, and so and throughout many of the plays, not right, just the right. you know like the way <laughs> yeah. right, hello,
1: and this is wonderful. We're going to talk about Merchant <laughs> of Venice soon, but Ayanna, actually, I want to start with uh, the play that you ironically end your book with, which is Peter's 2009 New York production of Othello at the Public Theater, and that play started. Rehearsing rehearsals in September of 2008 when Barack Obama was running for president. And you point out that there was a lot of talk back then and after the election as well about how America was a post-racial society. So how did the production situate itself in 2008 and address this idea of a post-racial America? And I'll start with you and then we'll get Peter's take on his own take.
2: The production was amazing because I think Peter was exactly using that play to respond to what was going on in the world in 2008, which was that many people were saying that absolves us then of having to talk about race because clearly we must be beyond that if he is just about to be elected. And Peter's production so brilliantly showed a world in which there were many people of color in positions of of power, not just Othello. And this caused, I think, a type of cognitive dissonance for theater reviewers who just decided that he was presenting a post-racial society. When in fact, what the production, it seems to me, was doing, and and I want to stress that Peter's productions aren't something that you digest and then you say, aha, I got it. But what I think I've come to, the production was showing you that even in a world where people of color can achieve various positions of power, racism and racial insecurity abound. And that those silent, deadly killers, both literally and metaphorically, operate in our society and if we allow them to go unchecked that destruction and devastation is the ultimate end and that was incredibly hard Um, for theater reviewers and audience members to face, because that is not the common narrative that we get. We're getting better. We're obviously better. We're better. And so that means we don't have to address past wrongs or past harms. And Peter would not relent. (laughs) The production would not relent.
1: Well, Peter, does this ring true to you? And and I do want our audience to be able to visualize this production. We're going back to 2008. And Ayanna quotes you in her book, saying that you wanted to take Othello's race baggage and place it on stage next to the early 21st century world in which the youngest guy in the room is a black man and he is the president. So could you and how did you do that in theatrical terms?
3: (laughs) Oh, my God. Well, first of all, what you just heard is why I love Ayana; She's incredible. Now, of course, we are aware how much rage was directed against Obama while he was president and what it meant. You know, Iago... This is the language of Dick Cheney. This is the language of the whole system, which is not going to kill what you love. It's going to actually make you kill what you love in order to join something that was never true. And so one of the things we just had to do right away was make the Duke (laughs) had to be a black man. And then what is blackness for Othello? Well, of course, this question of what is the more? What is the North African Spanish side of everything? So casting John Ortiz as Othello, who was not officially black, but of course in America the signal of blackness, of course is carried by by Spanish-speaking people. And the subtle thing, and you're black but not black, and maybe white, maybe this, maybe that. You know, all of those images are so vivid and I didn't want just the James Earl Jones hello, I'm officially black and I'm in a, appearing in an ad about your credit card. You know I, I, I wanted to get beyond this kind of single point definition of what blackness meant and 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 blackness as an official status. And locate blackness in a really complex place, which is, of course, like whiteness,
2: in a complex place. And just to say, okay, there's range here. Because systemic racism is opportunistic, right? And so that's why the terms of the game keep changing, so that, like, Whoever needs to get caught out can get caught out at whatever moment the system needs it. So like, okay, and whoever needs to
3: be elevated can exonerate right. the system that's by exactly. doing their Booker T. Washington pull up your bootstraps image. That's right, and just say nothing's wrong with the system; it's just individuals who are lazy. And so, just to get that was really, really essential for taking away these giant sweeping categories. And and to me, that's Shakespeare. Shakespeare is going into infinite complexity of any human being and saying, what is that person carrying with them? And to me, the, the romance of uh, Desdemona and Othello is this romance about inventing a future world. And the, the promise of that, of course, is the, it, what haunts the play.
1: Ayana, you wrote about this production that it upended everything you thought you knew about Othello, and you said it a moment ago that it's something that, that haunts you, that you come to later, different realizations. So what haunts you about it years later? What, what do you come back to?
2: Well, I'm used to being invited to productions of Othello because as a a black Shakespeare scholar, that's sort of (laughs) the cross we have to bear. (laughs) I don't get invited to a lot of Hamlets, but (laughs) but, so but, you know, I'm used to seeing Othellos where they're very legible. You're like, okay, right. Here's the moment where self-doubt enters in. I'm used to different visual palettes. Peter's was totally different. It was, as I said, there were like so many people of color on stage. They were saying things to each other that were horrible. There were past wrongs that were clearly committed that they were trying to cover up, but no one would talk about. And in the moment of watching it, it's deeply, deeply uncomfortable. But then thinking, reflecting about it after the fact. You think more and more about the complexity of humanity that he's representing on stage. Well, what's so
3: moving in Shakespeare
2: is the people who are apostrophizing endlessly
3: have the space to do it, but that doesn't actually give them access to truth. And Shakespeare shows you the longer the speech, the more weirdly delusional, and the more you can feel this person either struggling or not able to recognize that they're struggling. Shakespeare, you know, doesn't think that working class people are stupid, which is really intense in a play of a lot of people taking themselves very seriously. So to me, those things are magic. Those things are the touchstones in, in Shakespeare. Truth comes when you're waiting. And suddenly everything you expected isn't going to happen. And so suddenly you have time you didn't think you were going to have. And what does that reveal? It reveals thoughts that you had decided not to think. And suddenly you're thinking them. And, and, and everything that you had told yourself you would not think about today suddenly floods your mind. And you end up saying things you never intended to say, and Shakespeare is so interested in that, and and that's those scenes are so rich, uh, uh, pregnant actually <laughs> in in the case of, of of Act Two of of, I mean I I could do Othello and never get out of it. Act two—it was really irritating to me that there were <laughs> subsequent acts. Way. No, because Act two is just—you could start <laughs> going into, you know, again the whole intense stuff of, you know, Cassio and the alcoholism and the and the the crazy, intense ways in which all these people are trying to hide from themselves, from each other, their crazy relationships. Meanwhile, while they're trying to preserve a kind of media image of themselves. And Shakespeare, how did you how did he you know in sixteen oh three what the age of media would be like? What the age of what that kind of self presentation was all about, and that, you know, how much effort is being put into the self-presentation to mask a reality that is so ghastly that is immediately behind the surface.
1: Well, and you put a fine point on that with your staging. You had voiceovers and edited sound clips and 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 you've used time musical underscores and on the stage in Othello you had these television monitors and microphones and critics had a field day with uh, all of this um, pro <laughs> and con. But um, we could talk about Othello forever but I would like to uh, come back to something that Ayanna said about how your work stays with her and, and how she lives with it, and she dwells with it, and it evolves, because this really gets to the heart of what I think you expect from your theater, you expect from art, period. And I know that you had an experience like this very early on, and it was when you were, even before college, it was a gap year before college, you were in Paris, and you saw a production of Offenbach's The Tales of Hoffman at the Paris Opera in
4: 1974. (laughs) ¶¶
1: back there. Tell us about your reaction and this idea that you have that the destination is not opening night. The destination <laughs> is the rest of the life.
3: Well, I was plunging into European culture and I was seeing my first productions by Peter Brook, my first productions, the Bread and Puppet Theater. Where are you going? And of Patricia Rowe. And I went to Patrice's Tales of Hoffman, and of course I hated every second of it. Uh, I mean, not just a little, a lot. I just said, doesn't he know what this piece is about? Has he no idea what this piece is? This piece is colorful, this place is surreal, it's phantasmagoric, it has all this stuff. And he did a set that was entirely gray, entirely dark, strange, cold, crazy, with no color, no uh, phantasmagoria of any kind. (laughs) I hated it so much that I wanted to ask for my money back, which I'm not like one of those people. But I just (laughs) said, I can't believe I spent 10 francs on this ticket. And of course now, 40 years later, I can actually describe to you every moment of the entire evening. It's a production that stayed with me my whole life. And five years later, I realized it was the most important work of theater that I had ever seen. Classical culture, I mean, the nightmare of classical culture, whether it's Mozart or Shakespeare, is there's usually a privileged, educated audience that wants to be flattered by their own knowledge and their sense that they know. The implications of white supremacy are all written into I know Shakespeare. And so the sense that you're disrupting that circuit, that Shakespeare is something you don't know or is contrary to the way you've always assumed is so upsetting because you're touching something that goes way deeper than a literary criticism moment. You're actually moving into a core of why somebody goes to the theater, which is to have themselves reaffirmed in a certain image. And what happens when you're making a theater that's affirming other people and other realities and other possibilities?
4: Let me say amen be times, lest the devil cross my prayer. For here he comes in the likeness of a Jew. How now shall I win news among the merchants? You knew. None so well, none so well as you knew of my daughter's flight. That's certain. I, for my part, knew the tailor that made the wings she flew with all.
1: Yes, you want to challenge your audience, but you don't want to alienate them, or do you? Because this idea that theater should be challenging and that the audience grapples, something that the audience grapples with over time, You've been criticized uh, by critics for, for alienating people in the audience because of that. So how do you navigate that distinction between provocation and getting people to this place, getting them off balance, and alienation?
4: And then it is the complexion of them all to leave the dam. And she is damned for it. That's certain, if the devil may be her judge. My own flesh and blood. To rebel. Out upon it old Kerry and rebels it at these years. I say my daughter is my flesh and my blood. There is more difference between thy flesh and hers and between jet and ivory.
3: For me the between Supreme Court moves too slowly. They say the red- oh no red- the red- red- public red- isn't ready red- for this, red- for this red- decision yet red- so we can't make red- it. Red- and for me it's like yes but where is the truth? I mean don't we want to do truly something that needs to be done in the history of human beings? Yes. Do we need to wait till it's a better time to do that? No. For me, making theater, nobody needs to vote for me. Nobody needs to like me. I don't need to flatter anybody. I can actually say we're talking about things that, a type of truth that was true in 1600, that will be true in 2600, and that doesn't really matter what you think of it in the next 10 minutes. And so, you know, if this truth confronts some other truth that you're holding on to, then excuse me, let the chips fall where they may. I mean, let's see that. Let's actually experience that. And let's find out where your truth ends up. And let's find out where Shakespeare's truth is ending up. And let's experience that in real time.
4: If it will feed nothing else, it will feed my revenge. hath disgraced me and hindered me half a million. Laughed at my losses, mocked at my gains, scorned my nation, thwarted my bargains, cooed my friends, and heeded
3: mine enemies. And the people who leave the room are part of the theater of it. And the people who stay are part of the theater of it because if people start leaving, you have to say, am I going to stay here? Those are the real issues confronting America at this moment. Am I leaving here or am I staying? Am I going to say, OK, I disagree with every part of this, but I'm going to participate in it or and I'm going to recognize that in democracy, a whole lot of very complicated things are going to happen that aren't going to be to my liking. And does that mean I quit and go home or does that mean I actually stay in the game? And uh, not to alienate people. Who knows what's going to alienate anybody? You know, I also don't want to think of the audience as a single fat person on a sofa watching television eating potato chips. I, I, you know, the audience. Who's in the audience? A million people. Meanwhile, can we have something that would please a segment of the audience that nobody's ever tried to please? I mean, so and for me, and this has
1: been your approach ever since you started. And 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 you can tra- I can trace it very. And Ayana, you trace it back to some of the earliest productions Peter did back in college. And I'm thinking of Peter's staging of Coriolanus when he was a student at Harvard in 1977. Remind <laughs> us, since I brought it up, what that was like. Well, I, I think, it,
2: you know, people were outraged. <laughs> and, and <laughs> What did it I look love... like, first of all? What, what did people see? Well, I think, you know, his style has been remarkably consistent. And this is why I'm always surprised when critics are like, Peter Sellers, he did something we didn't expect. I'm like, you really should expect it, right? (laughs) Like, it's going to have expressionistic lighting. It's going to have... a lot of technology, um, a definitely use of microphones. Um, it's going to have moments where there's intense music used, and it's always going to be a multicultural cast. And
1: I think- And then some oh, surprises. Back in Harvard, you did an Anthony and Cleopatra that was staged in, in, in the pool in a dorm basement. Right well, in. that was not just
3: any pool. That, yeah. that,
1: that that was the Gold
3: Coast dormitory built by Cornelius Vanderbilt for his son and his son's friends. So it was well, that pool that was, a, royal was pool. a Roman bath, oh. a Shinto shrine, a nightmare of marble, and at the same time next to this cold, cold power architecture. Uh, just to go back to Corlanus for a second. Mm-hmm. Of course, the other thing is just what it means to defy the whole world and lose. <laughs> not only the world, but yourself. And, the, and there is a play where the silent woman is actually the power. And the power in the play is not from the people who are raving and ranting, but the power of the play is in that silence. It is everything that is known and not spoken.
1: Well, what you just said is also a little emblematic of what I'm about to ask Ayana, which is that, Ayana, in your book, you make it sound like it was a good thing that this production way back in college flopped. I mean, you got a lot of flack (laughs) for that. Because, Ayana, you write that that, that Peter was forced to form his own theater company when no one else would work with him. Well and he
2: said you know, jokingly, I think back in um in his earliest professional days when he was remembering, you know, two years earlier as a as an undergraduate at Harvard that no one would let him direct, not even the Gilbert and Sullivan society. <laughs> which, which I just love. Like, you know, the, the the production was deemed such a failure that he was left to his own devices. So left to his own devices landed him in the Adams House pool.
1: Look, didn't you have moments of just crying into your, you know, notebooks? No, the opposite. I no. mean,
3: you know, you're always being, you know, anytime you're fired, or I've been fired most of my life uh, from very, <laughs> very impressive positions. And in fact, it hurts. I mean, it never doesn't hurt. But you're also, you suddenly realize you're liberated and people begin to recognize that you stand for something.
2: And, that, and also you recognize that you stand yeah, for something. Yeah, I mean, there's I mean, just I think something. What, yeah, yes. I,
3: mean, I mean, that's, uh, wow, that's incredible. You can say that, I, and I'm not allowed to say that, but you're right. That's, a, <laughs> that's intense because then people start to regard your work as somebody who isn't in the game to be in the game and who isn't actually playing around at all and who is totally serious.
1: Well, now is the perfect time then to talk about your 1994 staging of Merchant of Venice And Anna spends a lot of time in the book talking about this one production. And you did it in response to the Rodney King beating and the uprisings in L.A. that followed. So what specifically were you responding to?
3: For me, what was really hard about that was nobody had the language.
1: Although there was a lot of loud rhetoric going
3: on. Huge rhetoric, but the rhetoric was not communicative. And, for example, you know, the, the kids who set the city on fire we, we had all the airwaves all over America open as two white guys in a helicopter circled a fire and said, is that another fire down there, Pete? Yep, Bill, that's a fire. He said, wait, well, wait a minute. Is no one on the ground? Does no one able to talk to somebody on the ground about what this really means? In fact, these gang members had studied different peace accords between the Palestinians and Israel. They had done serious work an economic theory, and they were drawing an economic map of Los Angeles in fire. They dealt with what a ghetto was. A ghetto is a situation which hasn't changed in 900 years, where a group of people is made to live in a horrible part of the city, pay double the rent, pay twice as much money for bad food, and be ringed by cops. And the rule of the neighborhood is money goes out of the community and no money is allowed in. Now just to say Merchant of Venice, of course, is about ghetto. What does it mean that one set of people have been made to live in a different economy?
4: Six. Here is six for thy three thousand ducats. Here is six. Here is six. Ah, here is six. Here is six thousand ducats.
3: Shakespeare's whole point about racism is it's economic. And it's just about what these people are paying and what you're paying. You know, one part of the city, you know, there's no landscaping. There's just cement. And another part of the city, landscaping. That's the basic, simple version of Merchant of Venice. And then the question is, what does it mean that our prisons are filled with brown and black people when in fact most crime is not made by brown and black people? And of course, Shakespeare shows in Merchant of Venice, you are very happy to have the justice system render a verdict that is wrong.
4: Colonialism forces the people it dominates to ask themselves the question constantly, in reality, who am I? Pause there, Morocco, and weigh thy value with an even hand. If thou be rated by thy estimation, thou doth deserve enough.
3: Does that
1: sound like yeah. Los Angeles? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. Well, how did you translate this myriad of ideas, the, the lack of precision of language, and the, the lack of meaning in language, and the economic disparity, and, and race? How did you translate that to the stage?
4: A gentle riddance. Draw the curtain. Go!
1: Let all of his complexion choose me so.
4: Mislike me not for my complexion. Mislike me not for my complexion. Mislike me not for my complexion.
2: Mislike me not
1: for my complexion.
4: Mislike me not for my complexion.
1: For my complexion. I jump in here. What stood out for you in the staging of, of this play?
2: Well, I think what there are several things that that stand out and I think are um kind of representative of what Peter does on stage at least in his Shakespeare work is that there's no one central area of focus for the audience, and I think audience members are used to having kind of giant arrows on stage. Here's <laughs> the important person delivering the message, right? And you're going to walk away with the message. And instead, in in, in Peter's productions, and in um, Merchant of Venice in particular, There were multiple things going on at the same time, right? The actor on stage delivering this beautiful speech, a television monitor that made him look monstrous, other characters reacting, doing their own separate thing. And so the audience is is unaware of where they're supposed to focus, and they get this kind of divided sense of um, the experience. If her husband,
4: lover, brother, son, father had anything to say about the matter. This is no answer, thou unfeeling man!
3: He might be castrated or lynched. But of course, when we did those performances of Merchant of Venice, which had only two white people on stage, the the judge, of course, and the uh, white trash, Lancelot Gobo, the show was sold out for months before we did it. And then, of course, with the first preview, by the end of the evening, the Goodman has about 600 seats. By Act Five, there were 17 people left in the theater. <laughs> and the first people started walking out in the first five
1: minutes. Ayana, you said something very interesting about this production as well, that you felt it was important because it anticipated today's historical cultural landscape where white Americans are forced to confront expressions of black American rage. And I'm quoting from your book. Can you expand on that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think in the wake of the Los Angeles uprising, there was a sense that the black rage that was being, you know, ignited literally by the people on the ground was isolated. Um, and I even think about Michelle Obama, who got a lot of flack for when I think right before Barack was voted into office. I think someone asked her how she felt about being an American. And she said, well, it's complex. right?" <laughs> and and then people were like, oh, she's unpatriotic. She's, you remember the New Yorker cartoon by Barry Blitt that d- depicted her as like, you know, an Angela Davis, black power fisting person because she had made that statement. But I think we are at a point now and Peter's production really, really was so prescient to say, actually, here's this thing that white America has never wanted to face. And that is that black Americans and many brown Americans have this underlying, weird, different relationship to patriotism, America, concepts of America that often become very racialized as white. And there's this anger, this underlying anger, that we were not allowed to see on stage, and
3: certainly not through Shakespeare. And can I interrupt and just add one more thing? Anger and hurt. Yes. Because hurt is the is the wild card. Yes. Anger eventually burns itself out, but the hurt doesn't right. go away. And yeah. the hurt is what expresses itself in human beings in all kinds of ways.
1: Well, that brings me to my last much too big question for a last question. But we're, we're talking about this racially charged political moment that we find ourselves in right now. And what do you see as the role of theater? And I'll start with you, Ayana. What's the role of theater in this polarized time? What's the place of Shakespeare? And do you think, do you think theater and Shakespearean theater is rising to the occasion?
2: Uh, most commercial Shakespeare theater, no, is definitely not rising to the occasion because that's not their intention. Um, I think their intention is to offer entertainment that is clearly digestible, but that is not what I think we need. And that's why I spent this time writing a book about Peter, because he offers, he throws down a challenge that is if we are going to take democracy seriously and if we do think that this is a social system that should survive then we have to do the work it's not easy work which is having informed complex conversations disagreements about things that really matter and that is how do we encounter outsiders how do we define our borders how do we stop systems that oppress you know, whole groups of people. That is what Shakespeare is asking in his plays. And Peter, in his productions, does not shy away from those large questions. And the optimism that I love about Peter is that if you put on a complex production, that those dialogues will ensue. And that's the world I want to live in, where we can have those dialogues and those debates. Peter. Iana, oh, my God. Peter's holding his heart. (laughs) Oh,
1: my
3: God. I'm hyperventilating. It's just like I want to frame that. Oh, my God. That is the world I want to live in. And guess what? It's the world we do live in. You know, the world we do live in is intelligent. And things that were never true are never going to be true. And that's one thing that time goes, you know, when we say what's sustainable, what's sustainable is the truth. What's not sustainable is the lie. Mm. And Shakespeare is all about that. And they come back over and over again in whatever new disguise and whatever new costume. But they are going to collapse because they will collapse. And that's the heart of what Shakespeare's project is. I I would just say, you know, he wants it to be complex because it is complex. And if democracy was easy and could be solved easily, then it would be just fine. But... Even baseball is complicated. You know, even, you know, I'm like, sorry, but, you know, anything you care about, like your own kids, are complicated. And you're not going to just solve it one day because you have to feed them three more times tomorrow. And so it is with democracy. You can't say, oh, yeah, we did that. It's fine now. (laughs) You know, it's like, you know, that was when they were eight. Now they're 12. Now they're 14. (laughs) Now they're, you know, like, hello. Hello. Well, that's how you have to treat your country. That's how you have to treat the democracy itself. It's a big project. And theater was invented as a way to get your hands on it without those hands going to somebody's throat. It's that you actually can have a chance to test this out, to try to look at it, but all the people are just acting. And that's why Shakespeare wrote these glowing, glowing plays that are unbearable and go through things that nobody really is able to talk about. And Shakespeare found this weird, weird, dark, strange, miraculous language to speak of everything that's unspeakable. I mean, Shakespeare is taking you through all of America. And he's taking you not through England. His plays have nothing to do with England. They have everything (laughs) to do with America. They have everything to do with the country that thinks it's the most powerful country that ever was. And guess what power is actually not something you want to be, <laughs> you, want to, <laughs> you know, and, and you, you actually, life is about everything else and every other possibility that power isn't going to offer you. And Shakespeare's plays are about, you know, what power does to you and also what the ability to renounce power does to you and what the ability to challenge power does to you.
1: Well, let's just say both of you just come to every podcast with every guest <laughs> and... <laughs> <laughs> Let's just agree on that right now. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much.
2: Oh, both Barbara, of you. are you kidding? What a blast. Thanks, Barbara. Thanks, Peter.
3: Such a Ayana, pleasure. Ayanna, I want to <laughs> hug you across the airwaves.
0: Theater director Peter Sellers is a recipient of a 1983 MacArthur Fellowship and is the creator or director of numerous works, including Shakespeare and opera. Ayanna Thompson is director of the Arizona Center for Medieval and Renaissance Studies at Arizona State University. Her book on Peter Sellers is the latest in the Shakespeare in the Theatre series from Bloomsbury. It was published in 2018. They were interviewed by Barbara Bogave. I Understand Thee Well was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern-Pastor and Esther Farrington. Ben Lauer is the web producer. We had technical help from Andrew Feliciano and Evan Marquart at Voicetracks West in Studio City, California, and Brian Mendez at public radio station KJZZ in Phoenix. We'd also like to thank Julia Carnahan, Peter Sellers' assistant, for all her help in making this interview possible. If you're enjoying Shakespeare Unlimited, we hope you'll do us a favor. Please consider rating and reviewing the podcasts on whatever platform you get the podcast from. When you do that, it helps us get the word out to people who haven't heard it yet. And if you find yourself in Washington, DC, come visit us at the Folger Shakespeare Library on Capitol Hill. Take in a performance in our Elizabethan theater and come face to face with a first folio of Shakespeare's plays. We look forward to seeing you. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge in the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.